Amen, amen. Man, it is uh, mostly good to be back with y'all. And so it is, I'm so thankful for those that filled in, for Jesse and for Justin and for Chase, uh, leading you guys in the word and in the study of now what, essentially, what do we do after the resurrection? I hope that has been a, a fruitful time for you as you've sought to apply God's word richly to your heart and seek to live out his word and be impactful in your community and all the various places that God is, is taking you and leading you to be on mission for him. Hey, over the next six months, we're going to be in a study of the book of Galatians, so you want to begin to find your way there. If you don't have a copy of God's word, we have one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for you to take that home with you. Let that be a gift from us to you. We're going to be in Galatians starting in chapter 1 this morning. It's going to take us six months or so to make it through there. Now, the book of Galatians is really interesting for a couple of different reasons. One of the reasons it's particularly interesting is because it is not written to one individual church, one individual church, but it's written rather to a group of churches all in one area. Now, this group of churches all in one area we read about in Acts 13 and 14. Now, in Acts 13 and 14, Paul is sent out, he and Barnabas are going and they're traveling along in modern day Turkey. And they hit into this group of cities, and so they're in Antioch, they're in Iconium, they're in Lystra, and they're in Derby. And I want, I want you to see in Acts 13 just a couple of things. Paul rolls into town, and, and the pattern we see over and again in Scripture is he comes into town, he goes around and he says, uh, kind sir, could you point me in the way to the synagogue? And kind sir says no, and we find out that he's not so kind. And so he actually finds somebody kind. He says, madam, uh, could you point me in the way to the synagogue? And she says, it's over there. And so he goes and he, he finds himself in the synagogue and he begins to open the scriptures. And as he opens the scriptures, he points them to Jesus. He says, in essence, listen, you remember long ago how God did this, how he came and he raised up judges, how God came and he gave them a king and that king was David and out of that king came one man and his name was Jesus and Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah and Jesus is the fulfillment of Jeremiah and Jesus is written about in the Psalter and over and over and again and they're like, we get it, we get it, we get it. He's like, believe Jesus. And people go nuts because they find themselves set free. And they find themselves with the answer to the question that you sought to answer over the last few weeks. Now what or now who is this? And the answer is Jesus, follow Jesus. Jesus is the answer over and over and again in Scripture. Now look at what Paul says to them in chapter 13 and verses 38 and 39 in the book of Acts. Paul says, let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. They sought to see themselves come out from underneath the burden of sin through the sacrificial system, through attending the synagogue, through right, moral, righteous living. And what does he say? Through this man is the forgiveness of sins. And by everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul unshackles them from the burden of rigorous rule keeping. Paul unshackles them from the law. Paul sets their hearts free. Paul says to them, here is the key. Put Jesus in the lock. Be set free. And they believe and they follow. He says, everything you ever did to try and set yourself free was impossible, but Jesus can set you free. 
And he says it in Antioch, and he says it in Iconium, and he says it in Lystra, and he says it in Derby over and over and over again. Paul sets them free through the only one who could ever set us free. And friends, that is Jesus. So he makes it to the end of this, this group of cities, this group of towns in modern-day Turkey. And look at what it says in chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. It says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So they hit Derby and then they come back around for round two. And this is what they did, verse 22. They strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. In essence, follow Jesus, y'all. It's going to be hard, but it's absolutely worth it. Stay true to Jesus. Well, it wasn't very long before some people came along and they said, hold on a second, hold on a second, hold on a second. You're telling me all the rigorous rule keeping I've ever done. And, and, and y'all, we have been, and they would use this word, they would say, we have been fastidious because it's such a great word and it just rolls off your tongue, right? And you feel like this much smarter than everybody around you when you say it. We have been fastidious at rigorous rule keeping. And you're telling me that we can only be set free by Jesus. Surely we can do better than that. Surely we can enhance that a little bit. Surely we can add something to that. Well, lo and behold, Acts 15. It says, and some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so this group of men, they found themselves in Antioch. They found themselves in Iconium. They found themselves in Lystra. And they found themselves in Derby. And every time they would walk into a town, they would find the people that Paul had grouped together. And they would tell them, listen, Jesus is good. But what you need is Jesus plus circumcision. What you need is Jesus plus strict Torah adherence. What you need is Jesus plus a Jewish name. What you need is Jesus plus keeping the feast. What you need is Jesus plus and then on and on. But what we find in that is when you begin to add things to Jesus, you are subtracting everything from the gospel. And all the shackles from your life that Jesus sets you free from, what you're doing when you add those things back in, you're adding a shackle around your leg. And you're adding a shackle around your other leg and each of your hands and ultimately upon your heart. And you're shackling yourself, tethering yourself to something other than Jesus. Only Jesus sets you free. Only Jesus sets you free. But Paul's no longer in the region of Galatia. He's left that region. He's traveled outside of it. But he hears how they are moving. In essence, they are leaving Jesus for something else. They're abandoning Jesus. They're abandoning the gospel. And so he sends probably his first letter in a harsh rebuke. Because it's so incredibly insidious and dangerous when we substitute a relationship, a love relationship with Jesus, with fastidious, rigorous rule keeping. Church attendance, tithing, being a good person, being well thought of by others. When you add anything, you begin to replace Jesus with these other things. Let us pray and then we'll walk through verses 1 through 5. God, this morning as we come into this place, we recognize that we are men and women 
who give ourselves to the reshackling of our hearts to things that we can do. That we are men and women who imprison ourselves into the shackles of our failures. That even though, God, that we would within our minds and within our hearts say certainly that we've been set free by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, there's something that we need to do or we'll lose it. That we must be worthy of it or you will reject us. God, this morning, would you set us free again? Would you call us back to renewal and faith in you? God, would you remind us that your Holy Spirit, according to the book of Ephesians, has sealed us and is holding us steadfast for the day? God, would you help us to to recognize, would you help us to pray with the knowledge and the understanding that we are held steadfast by the work of Jesus and not by our work? Not by our rigorous rule keeping, not by the abstaining of things, God, but we are held fast by the shed blood of Jesus. And so God, but this morning, would you allow your Holy Spirit to testify to that in our hearts? That we would freely surrender our sin, that we would freely yield up our shame, that we would freely yield up our hurt to you, that we might be set free again. Father, I pray for those who are wrestling and considering the claims of Jesus Christ, that you would open their hearts, that you would remove the blinders from their eyes, God, that they would experience your son and his gospel and be set free. God, would you, by the power of your word, call us all into deeper love with you, that we might experience the freedom that you have established for us, set aside for our enjoyment and for our relationship with you. And with your son, by the power of your spirit, in Christ's name, amen, amen. Galatians 1, 1 through 5, Paul writes and says, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, as this group of uh, folks sought to be impactful to the churches there in Galatia, one of the things, and one of the things that they attacked for Paul is to say, listen, this guy he is like, you got to recognize that, that he's not one of the original 12. He's, he's not one of those guys. He's, he's, just, he's just kind of a tag along. At best, Paul is a late addition, and, and he didn't even really personally know Jesus. Like, he wasn't around. In fact, you may not know this, churches of Galatia, but this guy, Paul, who's giving you all this information and seeking to set you free, this guy was yelling out murderous threats. This, he was not a nice guy. He was not a good guy. Why would you find yourselves living uh, according to what he's saying? So what does Paul do? He addresses it directly. He says, Paul, an apostle. He says, I have seen the risen Lord. Paul encountered him in Acts 9 as he's walking on the road to Damascus. He's sent there to arrest and to imprison and to seek for the death of those following Christ. And Jesus encounters him on that road and he radically changes his heart. But look what he says. He says, not from men nor through Man, not from men nor through man. He says, you're right. There was no establishing body whereby I went. I said, listen, I am, you know, I was formerly 
just shouting out murderous threats, but I'd like to petition. I'd like to petition your body, and 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 if you would just kind of say, well, you've been absolved, you've been forgiven, then I can go out with this badge and and this certificate of cleanliness, and just say, hey, listen, look at what it says right here. The Christian Sanhedrin said that I'm I'm absolved from trying to kill all these people. Look, it's got stamps, it's got a seal, it's got a signature in black, not blue ink, and so I'm set free. Paul says no such thing exists. He says it wasn't through man, it wasn't through men, but it is through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now this is the remarkable thing. That Paul, even as he is out screaming murderous threats, that even as he's out and he's holding the coats of those that are stoning Stephen, and even as he's out and he is in active opposition to the cause of Jesus Christ, Jesus and God the Father up in heaven, they're saying, this is going to be nuts. This guy, we're going to send this guy out as a missionary. And the angels are just kind of over here in heaven. And they're like, y'all, Jesus and God are up to some crazy stuff. You remember Paul? Like, we've been protecting Christians from Paul. They're going to send that guy out. And he's like, shut up. You don't even know what you, that's crazy talk. He's like, just listen. And Jesus and God the Father are back over here. They're like, this is crazy. Like, the angels think we're nuts. We made them, we made him, and we're going to make his heart for us. So Paul's bebopping, he's, he's whistling whatever murderous chant you whistle on the road to Damascus. I'm guessing it's like nine-inch nails, like early, like first century nine-inch nails whistling. Which I'm, I can't even, like my mind's just going a lot of places right now, so you have to forgive me for that. I really want to try and whistle this, but we're just going to keep going. And he meets Jesus and he says, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus. And when Jesus sends Ananias to come and to remove the scales from Paul's eyes, he says, I'm going to show him just how much he must suffer for the gospel. And this is exactly what happens. You see, because Jesus is in the business of taking murderers, of taking adulterers, of taking people who are sufficient in their own goodness and using them mightily for the cause of Christ. Paul says, listen, it wasn't from man, it wasn't through men, but it's through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And this is what God the Father did. God the Father is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Now, why does he say that? Why does Paul call them to this reflection and this, this recalling of the resurrection? You see, because the resurrection is a reminder to all of us that we are insufficient. The resurrection is a reminder to all of us is that we are radically dependent upon Jesus. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. See, the resurrection is this wonderful heart check for me in the midst of thinking, this has been great. I have such a close walk with Jesus. I've not had to deal with any church members for a month. And, and this is just the most wonderful thing in the world. I'm like, I'm skipping along and singing the opposite of whatever this Nine Inch Nails song that Paul was singing. And so just kind of making melody in my heart for the Lord. I love the Lord. And then just kind of all these great things. But my relationship with Jesus isn't dependent upon me. 
what merits me, what affords me salvation, isn't that I'm a good guy. If it is dependent upon me to be good, if it is dependent upon me to be righteous, if it's dependent upon me to make wise decisions, I am lost in my sin anyway. But he says what is dependent upon is that Jesus rose from the dead. God steps up our salvation in such a way that we would look at it and say, this is not on me. No good deed have I done. No meritorious work have people seen in me. No direction headed towards righteousness did God recognize in me. But even when I was wayward, even when I was enmeshed in sin and loving it, Christ died from me to ransom me, to win me, to pull me back from the brink of death. And I've been set free. So Paul reminds them. He says, this sounds good to you. People are walking around and they say, listen, if you just do this over here, if you just engage in this physical act over here, just a little bit of circumcision, you can only do that once. And if you just a little bit of rigorous rule keeping, and if you just do these things just right, God's going to be totally okay with you. And that sounds good. That sounds good when we're doing good, doesn't it? Legalism sounds so edifying and good when we find ourselves living in our own self-righteousness and we're right here. But when we begin to struggle with sin and we begin to feel the difficulties of humanity and we begin to have an oppressive boss and we begin to read the news, suddenly it's not so easy. Legalism isn't just setting up and establishing rules. It's teaching you to trust in yourself and be dependent upon your own goodness and your own ability to keep your word. This is why Paul reminds them of the necessity of the resurrection. Not just that we need it to be saved, but we need it as a reminder of our inability to save ourselves. So that this church operating in an absence, in a vacuum of grace, to this church experiencing no peace because they're trying to do everything on their own, Paul extends to them grace and peace. Look at verse 3. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. John Chrysostom, a preacher in the early church, said it this way. He said, for since they were in danger of falling from grace, he prays that they may recover it again. And since, he, since they had become at war with God, he beseeches God to restore them to the same peace. Some of us today, what we need to experience again is a renewing of God's grace. Listen, his grace has not departed you. His grace has not left you. It has not abandoned you. But many of us, what we do is we find ourselves seeking to live in our own factories of grace. I seek to live in my own factory of grace instead of recognizing that the only way I can receive grace is from Jesus Christ. Cannot create, I cannot create buckets of my own grace. I cannot lavish myself with grace. I cannot bathe myself with grace. God extends grace to you through Jesus Christ. Not through making him happy doing well. God is not more pleased with you that you showed up for church this morning. Your mother may be. 
Although for many of us, she's probably frustrated that you arrived late. And for some of you online, I, I just don't know how your mom feels about you. Maybe this is what she wanted, church in PJs. Or this is what you convinced her she wanted. Well, that's, that's your own mess. God is not more pleased with us. You have a full store of grace given to you by God through Jesus Christ that covers all of your sin prior to you coming to know him and all of your sin over the entire course of your life. What you need is a reminder of that grace. Storehouses of grace set aside for your pardon. Peace in the midst of the difficulty. But look at what he says here in verse 4. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what has Jesus done? It says, who gave himself for our sins. What makes us in the midst of these things able to receive the grace and peace from God the Father? It is an awareness of and an admission of our guilt. I've been reading a great deal lately about Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a preacher in the early 20th century. So Lloyd-Jones is a medical doctor and then in the late 20s began to have a sense that God was calling him to ministry. No form of theological training, so he decides that he is, he's a Welshman, so he wants to go to Wales. And when he goes to Wales, what he finds is that all of the churches there are just empty. There's a, there's a depression sweeping the land, they're empty. And a, a group of people get together, and, and this blew me away. And they decide, we're going to get people to come back to church if we have choirs. Maybe that's what we need. It's a, we're going to get people to come to church if we have choirs. We're going to get people to come to church if we just make it a little bit more exciting. If we just do stuff just to kind of bring church down to their level. And so, brother's got no theological training, so he's not been muddied. He's not been confused by seminary. And what he does is he goes into the midst of the church and he's like, what we're going to do is read the Bible. What we're going to do is apply it to our hearts and lives. And what we're going to seek to do is to love the Lord God and to love one another well. And they're like, you're in your 20s. You're a doctor. Clearly you need a professional minister to come help you out. And he, he looks at them and he says, do you not recognize that the revivals in Wales in 1903 and 1904 were founded on the word of God? That they weren't founded on choirs, that they weren't founded on attractional models, that they weren't founded on things to excite people. But they were founded as men and women were confronted with their sin. Because when they're confronted with their sin, then they have an opportunity to respond to the Lord. But if you confront no one with their sin, if you don't alert them to the fact that they are in a precarious state, that the judgment of God is coming for them if they do not believe in Jesus. If instead you take the approach and say, you're fine, you're okay, God's okay with you, you just take your time. There is no urgency for that person. So Paul tells them, this is what Jesus has done. He has given himself up for our sins. And so what it requires from you and from me is, is, is a ready awareness and an admission of our guilt. That we would come before God and say, I have sinned. You see, it's so much more acceptable and it's so much easier for us to say in this notional kind of sense that sin exists, that all of humanity has sinned and sin is just kind of out there. But when we come to this understanding that sin is in here, 
and that sin has marred my existence, and that sin has affected my mind, and that sin has marred my decisions. This is a sin to give up. This is a sin to give up. And friends, this is the sin Jesus specializes in. Because this is the sin his death atones for. Not this out there ether of sin that just kind of washes over people, but the sin that is so deeply ingrained and enmeshed in our hearts. As Paul says, Jesus gave himself. He died willingly for our sins. He surrendered himself over. And for what purpose? Yes, to save you eternally. But look at what he says next. He says, to deliver us from the present evil age. This connotes the idea of rescuing us from this present evil age. Now, I don't know kind of where you come down. And so some of us have this understanding that the world is good and it's getting better. Some of us have this understanding that the world is bad and it's getting worse. And depending on, on kind of what your, what your uh, appraisal of where the world is, you may have a really easy time or a really difficult time saying that this age is evil. But what we recognize in the midst of this is that Paul is telling us that the age he wrote in was evil. And we would say, that's fine. Rome is in charge of them. But the much more difficult thing for many of us is having this understanding that this age that we are presently living in is evil. But Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 that the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers so that they would not see the light and respond to God. A great number of Christians, godly men and women, have poured out their lives seeking to make this world something it's never going to be. Make this age something it's never going to be. And they are constantly discouraged. Essentially, if you were to ask them at the heart of it, what are you trying to do? What they would say is, I'm trying to eradicate sin. I'm trying to eradicate sin by getting rid of homelessness. I'm trying to eradicate sin by outlawing abortion. I'm trying to eradicate sin by taking care of sickness. I'm trying to eradicate sin by doing all these various things. Sin has reigned from the fall and it will reign until the return of Christ. Now you look at this and you say, well, that's really depressing. Doesn't this fool know it's Mother's Day? Why is it necessary we know this? If you think it's on you to return this world and to redeem this world, you're going to spend your life in discouragement. You're going to spend your life in frustration. You're going to spend your life thinking God is a failure and so are you. But if you will experience the freedom, the freedom found in this understanding, in this admission that this age is evil, that every age since the fall is evil, that we face opposition. The Bible tells us not just that the devil has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers so that they would not see and respond, but he tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 that we are to be sober-minded and to be watchful, that we have an adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And one of the ways he seeks to devour us is by allowing our hopes to be established on something that was never meant to hold us. This world will only ever be cured 
and figs at the return of Jesus Christ. So what do we do in the midst of this understanding that this world is evil? We, we live out this understanding that, that though we exist in this world, that we are made for another world. And so we find ourselves using our influence and using our, our time and using our resources in such a way is that we are good stewards seeking to accomplish a temporary good. That's something we can do. We can accomplish a temporary good. We can bring the light and salt of the gospel into darkness, into abortion. We can bring it into homelessness. We can bring it into drug abuse. We can bring it into all the ills of our society, both in this country and beyond. And we can bring a temporary good as a good steward of the gospel and the provisions God has given us. But we must not set that as our ultimate hope and our ultimate end. And how do we know? How do we know if we've set too much of our hope and how do we know if we've set too much of our heart upon establishing these things and changing these things? We recognize it because we find more time being discouraged that everything is going the wrong direction and the world is going to hell in a handbasket than we do finding hope and security in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God, I just, I just absolutely don't understand. I don't understand, God, how faithful men and women surrender their lives, live on mission from you, and die in a foreign field, never to be known, never to be heard about, never to have their families be able to find their remains. God, I, I just don't know, I just don't understand how in the midst of these things, that the, the, the world is spinning so wildly out of control. What we need to do is to fix our hope on that which is ultimate. God is the one who will fix and address the ills of this world. What he has called you and I to do in the midst of this is to recognize the evil of this age, to live faithfully to him, to trust him, and to seek to accomplish temporary goods in a fading world and allow our hearts to be established as they are being prepared for the unfading crown of glory to be given to us in the end. He has come to rescue us from this present evil age. That's why he has given himself. And look at what Paul goes on to say. He says, all this is according to the will of God and the Father. All this is according to the will of God and the Father. Verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Martin Luther. Martin Luther. We'll end with this. Martin Luther was writing uh, a song called A Mighty Fortress is Our God and, and, and really addressing in some sense a couple of verses out of his song address this sentiment. Listen to what he says. He says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom 
is forever. The intentionality and the direction of our lives should be lived that God receives it. In chapter 1 and verse 24, Paul said, and they glorify God because of him. This is, his, this is his desire for you. Not that you feel the shackles and the burdens of legalism. Not that you feel the weight of disappointment. Not that you feel yourself covered up in your sin and unable to unearth yourself from it. But that you would find yourself set free that you would find yourself living and dwelling in the grace and peace of God and that your hope would be his glory and in his glory and in his ultimate reign rest the peace of the church. Amen? Amen. Hey, let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your goodness, for your word to us. God, I thank you for this introduction from Paul to the book of Galatians that over these next six months that this would be a fruitful study for us. God, that you would be revealing in our heart times and occasions where we seek to live in our own fulfillment, but times and occasions where we seek to live in our own righteousness. And God, that you would set us free. Father, I pray that you would work in the hearts and minds of men and women who have yet to submit themselves to you. God, that in your son Jesus, they would find themselves being set free from goodness. God, that in your son Jesus, they would find themselves set free from the doubt of where they will spend eternity. God, help us not to shackle ourselves to anything but to find ourselves being set free because of the gospel the goodness and the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ we submit these things to you in his name amen amen